when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last.
Good afternoon, everyone. Okay, let's try that one more time. Good afternoon, everyone. All right. Dr. King would have liked that. Thank you all for taking part in our annual celebration of the life and the legacy of Do Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I would like to extend a special welcome to Van Jones, our keynote speaker and distinguished visiting fellow in the Center for African American Studies and the program in science, technology, and environmental policy to soprano Rochelle Ellis and the talented members of One Voice, and especially to all the student contestants who have honored Dr. King with so much insight and creativity. Finally, I would like to acknowledge uh, with pleasure the presence of a number of public officials who are with us today. Andrew Coons, Mercer County Freeholder, The Mayor of Princeton Borough, Mayor Mildred Trotman. Mildred, welcome. Borough Council President Kevin Wilkes of the great class of 1983. Joe Butler, a new member of the Princeton Borough Council. Joe, welcome. Lance Liverman, Princeton Township Committeeman. Lance. And finally, Bernie Miller, Princeton Township Committeeman. Bernie, welcome. Thank you for marking this important day with us. More than 40 years have passed since Dr. King's untimely death but his belief in the equality and dignity of all remains as relevant today as it was in the segregated South and the racially divided North of the 1950s and the 1960s. In a sermon delivered shortly before his assassination in 1968, he warned his listeners that through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood and yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. In other words, while technology has given us unprecedented power to both span and shape the world, until we exercise this power in a spirit of mutual responsibility, racism and poverty will continue to divide us. Our global environment will suffer and those who have the least will lose the most when disaster strikes. That was certainly the case in the summer of 2005 and the spring of 2010 when Hurricane Katrina and the Deepwater Horizon oil spill ravaged the Gulf Coast. The twin failures of the levees in New Orleans and the blowout preventer on BP's drilling rig had dire consequences for thousands of our fellow citizens, especially the poor and those dependent on the waters of the Gulf for their livelihood. And while Dr. King would have undoubtedly applauded the generosity of those who came to the region's aid, including many Princetonians, I suspect 
he would have also spoken out against the government and corporate failings that did so much social and environmental harm, as well as against the pervasive inequalities that these disasters magnified. As the compelling entries in this year's contest remind us, we must protect the global environment as if it were our own backyard, because it is. The environmental welfare of our planet and the well-being of future generations calls for precisely the kind of solidarity that Dr. King championed. We must all learn to live together as brothers, he declared, or we will all perish together as fools. This is an opportune time to take these words to heart and through our actions to bring American society a little closer to the promised land of which he dreamed. Thank you all for being with us today. Thank you, President Tillman. I'd like to join President Tillman in welcoming you to this afternoon's program. My name is Terry Harris-Reed. I am Vice Provost for Institutional Equity and Diversity here at Princeton. For Princeton, this day is a day to honor the life and legacy of Dr. King, in part by honoring members of our community whose lives and, achievement and achievements embrace the example Dr. King set, and to honor those students whose creative energy and thoughtful reflections reassure us that Dr. King's vision lives on in the hearts of rising generations. This program is possible because of the hard work and diligent efforts of many individuals who I now stand here to recognize. Later in the program, you'll have an opportunity to celebrate the winners of this year's contest, but will you join me now in thanking all of the students who submitted entries this year. They made the work of our judges very difficult and very rewarding this year. I would like to thank those judges, even those who turned in their uh, work late, <laughs> and all of the volunteers and all of the officers that you see listed on the back of your program today for their support, because without their support, without their hard work and their efforts, this program would not be possible today. So let's give them a round of applause. And finally, I would also like to extend a special thank you to the Institutional Equity and Diversity team, and in particular, Felicia Edwards, uh, for their work in coordinating and facilitating the many aspects of both the contest and the program. Most of you probably know Felicia's name by now. She's talked to parents. She's talked to principals. Um, she's worked with the Office of Communications, who always supports us 100% in this program. So I want to thank them. It is our hope that today's event inspires you, that it creates dialogue and sustains dialogue by exposing you to a song or beat that you may not have heard before, or to a turn of phrase that accurately summarizes your thought on a particular issue. We hope you leave here 
challenged to do more to uplift others who are less fortunate than you are. But before you go, we hope you do great things. Uh, before you go off to do great things, we hope you enjoy the rest of the program. Feel free to clap along with the choir. Feel free to smile at and encourage our speaker. He is a guest, and we want this uh, experience to be one of his most memorable experiences at Princeton. And please, when it's the time, uh, show your enthusiastic appreciation for all of our contest winners. Now I would like to introduce Danielle Ping, who will introduce today's speaker. Danielle will be a keynote speaker one day, and I know this by looking at her resume. Danielle is from the class of 2013 at Princeton. She was born in Jamaica, but she grew up in Boston, where she interned for Governor Deval Patrick and was a member of the governor's inaugural youth council. She's a member of the varsity track team. She's an executive member of the Black Student Union at Princeton. She's a prospective Woodrow Wilson School major, and she received an MLK scholarship award that enables her to attend Princeton. Please help me in welcoming Danielle. Good afternoon. <laughs> Today's celebration honors the impact of the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. King's dedication to helping humanity evolve fueled a civil rights movement aimed at creating a society that was morally just and accessible to all Americans. That journey towards equality and justice continues in various dimensions of today's society. The social challenges that have emerged as a result of environmental crisis, like Katrina and the BP oil spill, highlight the ongoing struggle to achieve MLK's dream. Today's speaker, Mr. Van Jones, is a nationally recognized activist whose work addresses the role of environmental politics and its effect on the unprivileged in America. As a graduate from UT Martin, Mr. Jones received his JD from Yale Law School in 1993. A visiting fellow to the Center for African American Studies, as well as a lecturer in the program in Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, Mr. Jones is well equipped to raise awareness of the policies that can create green economic opportunities for the disadvantaged. He advocates not just for job creation, but innovative employment that increases equality without harming the environment. In his book, The Green Collar Economy, How One Solution Can Fix Our Two Biggest Problems, Jones explores the social, economic, and political implications of creating green jobs. In addition to advocating environmental policies, Jones has also brought Dr. King's legacy into the White House. In 2007, Mr. Jones was a primary advocate for the Green Jobs Act, which George W. Bush signed into law in 2007. The act resulted in $500 million for green job training nationally and also introduced the concept of green jobs into our society. In 2009, Mr. Jones served in the White House as the green jobs advisor for President Obama. While Van Jones is best known for his work on environmental policies, for over two decades he has worked tirelessly in the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King to eradicate inequality in urban areas. 
He is the co-founder of three successful nonprofit organizations, the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, Color for Change, as well as Green for All. In recognition for these efforts, Mr. Jones was named one of the 100 most influential people in the world in the 2009 issue of Time Magazine, an incredible honor. He was also named a young global leader by the World Economic Forum and has garnered the honor of being one of Essence Magazine's 25 most inspiring African Americans of the year 2008. Jones's work in securing green jobs for urban America has made him a clear proponent of Martin Luther King's legacy. And I would like to have you allow me or help me introducing the man who I would call Mr. Dream, <laughs> Mr. Van Jones. going to see if I can get that introduction and take it home and re read it to my wife. So I <laughs> made me look good. I appreciate that. Uh, President Tilgman, uh, my great chair, uh, the mighty Eddie Glock, who, who has uh, been a hero and a role model for me, even though we're the same age. That's kind of embarrassing. Uh, to all my uh, colleagues at the Center for African American Studies and all of you, uh, it is an honor to be here today, a uh, picture of one of the greatest humans ever to live. Not just one of the greatest black leaders or Americans, one of the greatest human beings ever to live, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, happy birthday to you, brother. I'm especially excited to get a chance to talk because there's so many young people who are here. Um, most of us are probably young in spirit, but we have some actual bona fide, born after 1980, <laughs> and after 1990, some after 2000 people in here. And I want to say to you, that we are glad that you're here. We've been waiting for you, this new generation, for a very long time. You are the biggest generation of Americans we've had, this new millennial generation. You're the most diverse racially and ethnically that we've ever had. You're the most technologically savvy and sophisticated generation of Americans that we've ever had. Many of you don't know how much power you already possess. If you have a laptop computer, if you have a cell phone, some of you using it right now, <laughs> got the busiest thumbs in human history, these young people. Uh, if you have an iPad, uh, you have on your person right now, sitting here today, more technology and better technology and more computing power on your person than the U.S. government had when it put a man on the moon. Do you know that? Every single one of you is a walking technological superpower. We've been waiting for you for a long time. And the minute you decide to stop using this technology as toys, 
and start using it as tools to connect your generation globally and make a change, every problem we have is going to get solved. You got to know that. And I want you to take yourselves very seriously, young people. And the reason I want you to take yourselves very seriously is because we act like Dr. King was an old guy. Uh, we act like Dr. King, many of you, if you, you know, had to guess how old he was, you'd probably say, oh, about 80. <laughs> you talk like you're about 80. <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> Young folk don't talk like that. Well, they don't talk like that today. That's because uh, back in the uh, pre-YouTube uh, era, I know it's hard for you to imagine, uh, they trained themselves to speak that way. Rhetoric was considered a high art. But you heard that beautiful speech. How old do you think he was when he gave that speech? He's 33 years old. Dr. King was only 33 years old and he was standing there addressing the whole country and putting out a vision that still moves people today. In Montgomery, Alabama, when he helped uh, the women in that community lead a bus boycott, he was barely 25 years old in Montgomery, Dr. King, a young man. Uh, the Freedom Riders, the sit-in movement, which was led by young people who thought he was old because their average age was only about 19. So people 19 years old and 25 years old and 33 years old changed America, broke the back of Jim Crow segregation, broke the back of apartheid in this country. It had lasted for 100 years. Young people got sick of it and broke the back within a decade and moved on. That's the power you have as young people. And they did it all, and nobody had a cell phone. <laughs> My God. <laughs> How did they communicate? <laughs> but the question is, what are you going to do? Uh, Dr. King did what he did. If he were alive today, he'd be 82 years old. Uh, he was killed when he was 39. He never saw his 40th birthday. We're still talking about him. He's been dead now longer than he was ever alive. He's been gone 42 years. He never got to be 40. Uh, so at some point, we have to take his inspiration and his example and carry it forward. Uh, I'm 42 years old. I'm three years older now than Dr. King ever got to be. I was born in 1968. I was born in the year that they assassinated Dr. King the year they tried to kill hope in America. They, they shot down Bobby Kennedy. They shot down Dr. King. And they broke the hearts of a people. And for 40 years, we were in the wilderness. And it took 40 years before, for, for hope to become a mass phenomenon again in America. No matter what side of the aisle you are on politically, something happened in 2008 that moved the world and had people on both sides of the aisle shedding tears of joy because we had finally achieved something uh, in our country. So hope is a renewable resource, 
but it comes back in very long arcs. And so you happen to be alive at a time when hope is being reborn in your country. And thank goodness, and thank goodness you're here because the challenges now are as great, if not greater, than they were when Dr. King was a young man. You have inherited a tiny green soap bubble in space called Earth. Literally 120 years ago, there were not even a billion humans on this tiny green soap bubble called Earth. Today, there are 6.5 billion. In your lifetime, we may have 10 billion. Your challenge will be to figure out how it is that we share this little soap bubble in space without wiping out all of our sister and brother species and possibly wiping out ourselves. Whether or not humanity proves itself to be a blessing or a curse to all of existence will be determined on your watch. Uh, if you are a person of faith like I am, uh, you believe in a creator that created our species with free will, meaning even God does not know yet who we are because we have not yet chosen as a species. Are we going to be locusts? a species that comes and wipes out everything before its path, leaving behind nothing but destruction? Or will we be honeybees who find a way to make our labor fit in with the surroundings and lift up and add life and color and beauty? This decision about what kind of species we are going to be will be made by you and by your generation. And you have some warning signs bequeathed to you by my generation that our present trajectory is inadequate and dangerous. Two of them have already been spoken to by President Tilton. The Katrina disaster and then adding more insult to the existing insult, the BP oil spill. What can your generation inspired by Dr. King's visions and values, take as lessons from those two tragedies and, and pull from the pain a brighter tomorrow. First of all, look at Katrina, a superstorm that came and drowned an American city, left an American city underwater. That was just the first part of the tragedy. Storms happen. Floods happen. They say in the age of global warming, they may be more frequent, more severe, but storms and, and, and floods do happen. What made this such a horrific disaster was because for the first time, a disaster came and America left poor people and black people and old people and folks in wheelchairs behind. We saw African-American grandmothers on rooftops clutching babies and American flags. Not for one day with no help. Not for two days with no help. Not for three. But for six days, day after day after day, 
on national television, we saw the poor and the neglected and the despised abandoned in the richest country in the world. And this was the outcome, not of any one particular elected official's malfeasance. It was something deeper. What nobody wanted to admit at the time was that it was a natural consequence and outcome of an ideology that had taken over both political parties and much of American culture since Dr. King died. And that ideology said, and both political parties were championing it, we don't need social safety nets. We don't need government. We don't need uh, the age of big government is over. That was said by a Democratic president. All we need is rugged individualism. Something bad happens, just get a little bit more rugged. A little bit more individual. And everything should work out well. And if you can't be rugged and you can't be an individual, well, then you should just sink or swim. You let them sink or swim. It'll be good for the poor to just sink or swim. We'll cut back on welfare. We'll take away affirmative action. We'll take away all the good things that came out of the 60s. Then we're just going to let people sink or swim. See how well they do on their own. And when the storm came, we had a free market evacuation plan. Hmm? A free market evacuation plan. If you had a credit card and a functioning car, you could get out of town, but if you were three days short of payday, Mr. Chairman, if you were three days short of payday and couldn't put gas in your car, America said sink or swim. And we saw on television every day the absolute inevitable consequence of a sink-and-swim ideology, we saw the poor and the vulnerable on television literally sinking. Now, if you want to bring forward Dr. King's view, you have to be the generation that says, never again, not on our watch. We don't let the poor sink or swim. In this country, when catastrophes come, we don't turn on each other. We turn to each other. We are all in this together. That's got to be the way forward. Because there are more storms coming. There are more storms coming. And you have to have a worldview and a heart that's big enough to know that your country is better than that. You see, uh, not just in America. We had uh, this past summer, we'll go down in history as wacky weather summer, crazy climate summer. Just like New Orleans was underwater, this past summer, almost a quarter of Pakistan was underwater. Unprecedented flooding. Some are blaming global warming. Can you imagine a, a quarter of Princeton underwater? 25% of New Jersey underwater? 25% of America underwater? 25% of a nation was underwater. Some are blaming global warming. More storms are coming. We have to have a global consciousness, hopefully driven by young people, that says we're going to stand together. And then, again, to add insult to insult and injury to injury, in the same region, 
maybe the creator just thought like we hadn't gotten the message. A company, BP, a multinational corporation, given the right to drill off our coasts under the idea of energy independence for America. But it turns out that it was a multinational corporation doing the drilling that had the right to sell the oil all around the world to whoever wanted to pay the most money for it. But under that idea, we're going to be energy independent. We're going to drill, baby drill, our way out of our energy problems. We let a multinational corporation come to drill up our coastline with every intention of selling the oil to Asia, taking all the gain and leaving us with any potential pain. And guess what? The pain came. This is a company that makes $62 million a day, wait for it, in profit. Oh, I'm going to say it again because somebody, thumbs was moving. <laughs> I said, you're talking about a company that makes $62 million a day, every day, in profit. That's what's left over after they pay for the oil rigs and the ads and the Learjets. $62 million a day in profit. But somebody there had a brainstorm. And they said they could save by not putting in the proper safety valve on an oil rig out there somewhere in the ocean nobody cared anything about. And to save that $500,000, they destroyed a whole region. We'll never know how much oil was released because then they sprayed deadly chemicals on top of it to try to cover up the crime. To, to, to break up the oil. Well, guess what? This is not a cartoon. Uh, you can't just spray a chemical on something and something vanishes. Nothing vanishes. It just goes someplace else. And they broke up the big oil and made it little oil, and now it's all down in the bottom, killing off uh, creatures and species we don't even know exist. We don't know what has been done to that region, and we won't know for years to save $500,000. That level of greed... See, I believe in markets. I believe in a market economy. I don't believe in a market society. And there's a difference. I don't believe that everything should come down to just profits. Some things are more important than profit. And at some point, we have to stand up as human civilization and say that the bean counters can't count some things. And the value of the lives and the culture of the people who've been now walloped twice have to mean something. And you need to stand sometimes with poor folks and little creatures and little critters. And, um, and I'm not saying you'd have to like these critters. I, I went to the uh, Arctic one time to see about the global warming. Just a little aside, uh, Madam President. And... Um, I went up there to, to check on the polar bears. And, you know, I'd always, you know, seen the pretty polar bear pictures, and they look all cute and fuzzy. Not in real life. <laughs> I said, why are we trying to save these things? <laughs> and nobody who live up there want to save them. They all walk around with big, why you got the gun? Oh, the polar bears. Like, I'm with you. Uh, but I digress. <laughs> but conceptually. 
Your sister and brother's species need your help. And so do your sisters and brothers. And what I would say to you in closing is that there's a wisdom that is available to you as you take the best of the new technologies. We stand in awe of you, young people. We, we try to keep you in check because, you know, you have a lot of power. You're the first generation that has so much power in the household. Nobody can work the, the DVR machine without you. I mean, it's just, we can't, we, we, we need your help on a daily basis. We're not used to it. We just hope you use the power for good. That's all we. But that technological prowess that you just take to so naturally. We believe that if you use it in the right way, if you wed it to the right wisdom, you can make a tremendous difference. See, the, 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 you can now go online. Look, you don't understand this. Ten years ago, if somebody could walk down the street and communicate with anybody in the world without going indoors, and instantly bring into their mind any information in any library in the world, they would be called a god, right? That's just you with the cell phone and Google, okay? You have no idea what it means to have a generation of people like you, okay? And so there's wisdom you can access now. Our Native American indigenous sisters and brothers would have told you a long time ago, if anybody would have listened. You can't run a civilization and power a civilization based on death and assume no consequences. Oil is a substance that has been dead for 60 million years. Coal is a substance that has been dead for 300 million years. Your indigenous sisters and brothers would tell you, you can't drill holes and pull out death from the ground, burn death in your engines, burn death in your power plants, and then be shocked when you get death from the skies in the form of global warming and death on the oceans in the form of oil spills. Your indigenous people could have told you that a long time ago. And so the question is, oh, y'all can clap. Yeah, somebody knows something besides just us Westerners. The question is, can your generation insist that our society stop drilling those holes at some point? Can you stand up and say to America and to the world, we love our coal miners, we love our oil workers. They risk their lives, their lungs, their limbs every day to keep the lights cut on to keep powering America in the same old way. We respect them, but we want them to have a broader portfolio of energy, uh, employment options in our country because America's future is not down those holes. America's future is not down those holes. If you want to see the future, young people, look up. If you want to see the future, look at the living sun in the Saudi Arabia of solar power that falls on our country every single day, not just in the Sun Belt, but on rooftops across America. If you want to see the future, look up. Look at the sky, look at the wind, look at the Saudi Arabia of wind power we have in America. Huh? 
not just on the, in the plain states, but up near the Great Lakes and off our coasts. Remind America that there's a smarter way to power our country now. And the great thing about it, if you have wind turbines and you put people to work, put up the wind turbines, you can fight poverty, you can fight the global recession and global warming at the same time by creating those kind of jobs. And the other great thing is if you have wind platforms out there in the Gulf Coast, if a wind platform falls down, you don't have a massive wind slick that comes along and messes up everything. See? There's a smarter way to do this. Worked in solar energy now 15 years. Never heard of a sun spill. <laughs> See? That's your generation's job, to take that indigenous wisdom and that new technology and to create a new future. And if you do that, you can teach us a great lesson. Don't underestimate yourself, young people. That old bean counter that worked at BP that said we can save half a million dollars. I mean, yeah, half a million dollars by not putting in that safety valve. He or she didn't know what, they were, what she was doing. She had no idea how much power she or he might have to do harm. No idea. Just one small act based on greed. But look at the horrible consequences. Don't ever under, underestimate your power. Because in a rational, symmetrical universe, which is where you live, if one small act based on greed can create that horrible outcome and has the power to create that horrible outcome, that means that one small act based on love can create an unimaginably positive outcome, a beautiful outcome, something you cannot even conceive. That is your generation's power. Use your power well. Love this country. Love each other. Honor Dr. King. Happy birthday, brother. Thank you very much. In the words of my six-year-old great-niece, wow. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Jones. Um, as I said earlier, I think you will leave here inspired. Um, we've got a lot to think about and a lot to talk about. And uh, we thank you very much for your guidance in the best of the Princeton tradition of teaching and learning. Thank you. And as I said, I'm excited because there are people in our community who are doing the kind of work that uh, Van has inspired us to do today. And this portion of the program uh, gives us an opportunity to recognize uh, these individuals and to encourage these individuals. And so uh, following uh, President Tillman, who will uh, present the Journey Awards, is Assistant Vice President Lauren Ugorji, who will present our student contest winners. Thank you. I would like to thank Professor Jones 
for that truly inspiring lecture. But as a Canadian, I do think we need to have a little discussion about polar bears. and why they too are God's creatures and we want to protect them. Some of my best friends. So it's come to the time in the program uh, which gives me great pleasure because this is the moment where we present this year's Journey Awards which were first conferred in 2005 to honor members of the university community who have exemplified the spirit of Dr. King in their personal and professional lives. Our first honoree is Josue Lajeunesse, a lead janitor with building services and a source of inspiration for us all, thanks to his role in the award-winning documentary, The Philosopher Kings. As one of eight custodians featured in this film, Josue helps director Patrick Shen reveal what happens when seemingly ordinary people who have never had an opportunity to speak share openly about their experiences and the things they care most deeply about. The narratives that emerge are both moving and eye-opening, especially in a world that still makes judgments based on socioeconomic status and occupation. Through this film, which was shown on campus several times, followed by question and answer sessions, and through personal encounters with our students, Josue reminds us, in the words of Dr. King, that the true measure of a person's worth is the content of his character. Born in Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the world, he moved to the United States in 1989 and for the last 16 years has helped to keep our buildings spick and span. It's easy to overlook the contributions of custodians who often work while others are just getting up, but Josue's work is far from over when he leaves our campus. To support his large family, he drives a taxi late into the night and seizes every opportunity to increase his own knowledge and skills. He is also a passionate advocate for Haiti and the people he left behind, especially those in his childhood village. Working with his brother, who remained in Haiti, he has used part of his modest income to bring fresh, clean water to his struggling community, a labor of love that few were aware of prior to the Philosopher Kings. Today, he is pursuing new ways of helping his village, from health care to education, working quietly and without any expectation of reward. In the process, he has upheld a number of important truths, that our responsibility for others extends far beyond our immediate family and that even those with few material advantages can make a significant difference in the world. The second award, um, sorry, let me 
finish. In the words of Director of Building Services, Jonathan Baer, he has worked for the common good. He has chosen to make the problems of others his problem. And he, like Martin Luther King Jr., has inspired so many of us with the power of what one committed man can do, all of which makes him a worthy recipient of the 2011 Journey Award for Special Achievement. Thank you, Josue, and congratulations. Thank you. Our second honoree is Thomas Parker, who joined Princeton's staff in 1979 and serves today as a university mail carrier. Tommy, as he is affectionately known, embodies the spirit of selfless service that Dr. King has exemplified. And year in, year out, he has extended a helping hand to those who need it most from borough and township youth to fellow members of Princeton's local of the Services Employees International Union, the SEIU. Motivated by a deep concern for others, he brings to his work what one of his colleagues calls a unique and innate sense of fairness and humanity that is truly inspiring. Fittingly, Tommy is a strong believer in the advantages of higher education and the importance of increasing access to its benefits. To mention only two of his many civic involvements, he is co-founder of the Committed Princetonians, a group that provides adolescent males with mentors and tutors to encourage academic achievement and community leadership and has served as one of Princeton Borough and Township's Human Services Commissioners with a mandate to create a more inclusive, supportive, and just community. He has also left his mark on our university, most notably as president of Local 175 of the SEIU. In this role, he has assisted countless members of our staff in weathering life storms and developing their talents. His accomplishments, and there are many, include working to establish a minimum hourly wage for Princeton's regular employees, co-founding a summer program for union members designed to further their careers, an initiative that has led to numerous promotions, and spearheading a remarkably effective system of labor management councils that has improved the working climate on our campus 
and served as a model for our peers. Like Dr. King, he has given eloquent expression to the needs and aspirations of those whose voices often go unheard, while simultaneously building bridges between labor and management that have served both parties well. He has, for example, avoided positional bargaining with its dual demands and protracted negotiations in favor of trust building and information sharing as he seeks new ways to improve the work experience and future prospects of the staff he represents. But perhaps his impact is best measured in the individual lives that he has touched. In the words of one employee, a few years ago, I was on the verge of being terminated from the university because of my time and attendance. When no one else would go to bat for me, Tommy stepped to my aid, convinced management to give me another opportunity to prove myself. Two years later, I've had perfect attendance. For our honoree, this is what it means to be his brother's keeper. Thank you, Tommy, for all you have done to enhance the quality of life of staff and citizens alike. I'm delighted to present you with this year's Journey Award for Lifetime Service. Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks again to President Tillman, to Josie and Tommy, for all you do for our community every day. I am Lauren Ugorji, AVP for Communications at Princeton, and now we will turn to the student award portion of our program. Dr. King encouraged the involvement of young people in solving the problems of today through love and creativity. He warned that the act of alienating youth further degenerate, degenerates society. So it is our great privilege to recognize young people each year who are dedicated to the principles of King and to the creation of a wealth of ideas of which we can partake. This year, we asked students to become journalists and create posters, videos, and written works that would inspire society to take action related to the environmental impact of tragedies like those you've heard about today. The contest winners are going to line up by category, and I will introduce each by name. Please hold your applause until we have announced the winners of each category. Presenting the Visual Arts Contest honorees in grades four through six 
Honorable mention, Rachel Asir, grade six of Stewart Country Day School. Our third place winner is Millicent Brigo, grade four of the Waldorf School of Princeton. In second place, we have Brent Ferenzi, grade four, Holland Brook School. And our first place winner is Robin Carter, grade six of Stewart Country Day School. Congratulations to you all. And now, the seventh and eighth grade honorees in the Literary Arts and Video Contest. Honorable mention, Haley Filippini, grade seven, Reddington Middle School. In second place, we have a tie. Phelan Palladino, grade seven, of Stewart Country Day School, and Danny Eisgruber, grade seven, John, Wither John Witherspoon Middle School. And in first place, we have Iman Khan, grade eight, of William Allen Middle School of Morristown. Congratulations. We're going to move on to our ninth and 10th grade literary arts and video contests. In third place, Tassim Maner, grade 10 of Nor El Iman School in Monmouth Junction. And in first place, we have a tie. Devin Fitzgerald, grade 9 of Stewart Country Day School, and Taylor Filippini, <laughs> of Hunterdon Central Regional High School. Congratulations. And now we have our 11th and 12th grade honorees in literary and visual, I'm sorry, literary arts and video. Our third place Honoree could not join us today, but she is Catherine Huber, grade 11 of the Stewart Country Day School. Our second place winner is Brooke Ferenzi, grade 11, Hunterdon Central Regional High School. And our first place winner is Carly Fasanella, grade 12 of Stewart Country Day School. Congratulations. If we can have one more round of applause for all of our students, thank you so much. And now, we'll, we're welcoming to the stage soloist Rochelle Ellis. Mine. <laughs> 
shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. <clears throat> oh, walk together, children, don't you get weary. Walk together, children, don't you get weary. Walk together, children, don't you get weary. There's a great camp meeting in the promised land. We're gonna walk and Shall we all stand for Lift Every Voice and Sing?
Of all the feelings that a young person can have, there is one that makes life seem desolate, empty, and sometimes not even worth living. When it is not there, hope, hope for the future, hope to be loved, hope to be heard. When children are without hope, they are robbed of one of the most defining parts of their childhood. We must never underestimate the power of giving hope to a child. The whispers of my heart speak so softly. Are they really there if no one hears them? My voice is so small and so soft. Can you hear me? Give us hope and we'll show you the way.
Thank you again for coming. We hope to see you again next year. Same time, same place.